It's Flat Out RC Time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill, host of this program coming to you from the land down under, Melbourne, Australia. It's a good place to be at the moment, Melbourne, Australia. I can tell you that. Uh, as I record this, we're having sort of the last crack at some warm weather. Uh, it's a bit windier than expected this weekend. This is Sunday evening i'm recording this uh and yeah i expected the wind to be a bit lighter but uh it wasn't to be but anyway enjoyed getting out in the open airs this weekend which was good to see now a big podcast coming up we have special guest simon ventvogel now you may not have heard of simon's name but simon's been in the hobby here in australia for a long time and uh his name came up in last week's podcast with uh, mike farnan um and I said, oh, I know Simon. Simon, uh, I'd met him only a few weeks ago, but he's a member of the club where I fly. And I thought, I'll get him on. And we'll hear his story, which is actually quite an interesting story. He was a heli guy. And now he's a plane guy. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for my chat with Simon. But uh, let's see what's been happening around the traps first. Well, what has been happening around the traps? Well, a couple of things. Uh, great event that uh, was held at the Tin Can Bay Club up in Queensland, a, a large-scale plane event. Uh, all the usual sub suspects were out there. Tyson Dodd was flying jets, and Aaron Gall had plenty of these planes out there, um, some really, really nice models too. Uh, looked great. Had all the re recipe for a great event. Good food, good planes, good field, good company. What more could you ask for? So hoping to see some more... Uh, reports coming from that event over the next week but uh it looked like an awesome event and they're doing a really good job up in queensland with some of their events and the promotion of their events which i love to see uh so yeah weather's turning a little bit here down here south in australia um in, in victoria uh so still some events to come but hopefully the weather plays ball now what's on been on my mind well i was thinking about uh, how we learn how to fly and the instruction that we get. And uh, I know everybody's experience is a little bit different. Mine was pretty much self-taught experience. I taught myself how to fly on a simulator and then uh, have a mate, Dave Shearer, look over my shoulder um, because he flew mode two and there was no instructors that could fly mode two at my club at the time. And Dave was a great guy, very good pilot. But as far as getting instruction on how to land and do things like that, it was there was nothing, none of that. And it sort of... I think that a majority of people out there that learn at clubs are pretty much self-taught. What I mean by that is I'm talking about the nitty-gritty of things like a landing, you know, how to land a plane. The ultimate maneuver, I call it, is landing a plane. And you see a lot of bad landings at the club. You see a lot of good ones. Uh, but I'm not sure whether I'm convinced that the instructors follow a curriculum, even though there is one. Um, that the MAAA have outlined sort of a process to take people through and cover safety and things like that, which is actually pretty good. Uh, but I don't think, I think it seems that instructors are, are left up to their own devices to uh, interpret, you know, the curriculum and how to present that to their students. And I don't, don't think a lot of instructors are really taking the necessary steps uh, or providing the education that many people need because uh, I can tell you what, I, I know a number of pilots that got their wings that um, still don't 
really know. It's a bit hit and miss whether the plane comes back in one piece half the time. But even more advanced things, you know, like flying a roll properly. You know, a lot of people don't know how to fly a roll. Uh, they'll often you you'll see them pitch the nose up before they roll to counteract the dip of the nose when it comes through inverted. Um, but you know, if you fly iMac or Pattern or things like that, yes, you, you have to know how to fly a roll properly. But a lot of the instructors ask them. Go and ask your instructor how do you fly a roll properly. Um, go and ask them their philosophy on landing and what the technique is that they're they're instilling in their students and um, you know what is the right way. I read an article once in a magazine that was very well written on, on a UK magazine on how to land, and I can tell you now some of the points that were raised have never been raised by any instructor that I've come across. You know things like often we chop the engine and glide it in, but sometimes got to have a bit of power and flight in on power and how to control your descent rates and things like that. Uh, there's technique. And I think often that, that technique is is self-taught. Now, I looked for it myself personally. I, I went to the internet. I looked at other pilots, good pilots. Um, some people will write articles on how to you know roll, do a four-point roll effectively. I actually did it myself. I actually, I don't know whether I've mentioned this before, but I used to write for Airborne Magazine under the name 3D Dave. Um, that's another story why I didn't use my name, but uh, but yeah, you know, I used to write these articles on how to do different three D maneuvers, and some of it was like a four point roll because if you knew how to do a four point roll, there were a whole bunch of other maneuvers that now you could fly, including knife edge flight. And so um, I've always taken an interest in the technique of flying uh, because it's something that I always work on uh, myself when I'm flying. There's always a purpose to my flying. I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to get smoother, more precise, etc. Um, so I don't know about your, your experiences like, you know, shout out and tell me whether you think your instructor taught you well or not and what, what needs to happen. As far as I think, as far as I'm concerned, I think I may have mentioned this in the previous podcast, but I think there needs to be a defined curriculum that everyone follows so that there, everyone is teaching to a standard. Uh, I know I've spoken to one instructor who says he does use the MAAA curriculum and f- tries to follow that, but I've never met another instructor that will follow that curriculum. Uh, so I think there needs to be a bit tighter controls maybe. Anyway, that's just my opinion. If you disagree, well, you can start your own podcast and tell us your opinion or you can send me a message and I'll read it out and we'll have an argument. No, we won't. It's just model flying. No need for arguing here. Okay, time for a chat now with our guests. My favourite part of the podcast is when I get to have a chat with someone uh, instead of just talking to myself or the microphone. Uh, this week is uh, a guy by the name of Simon Ventvogel. Simon has been an aeromodeler for a very long period of time uh, and uh, flew planes, um, got into helis, really got into helis, you know, at a competition level. Um, And then sort of in more recent times, gone back to to fixed wing. Um, And as you'll see, very much into competing. He's always competed in different different categories of models that he's flown. And now he's joined the IMAC fraternity. So interesting chat. Uh, As I said earlier, you may not have heard of his name, but I'll tell you what, a really good story. It was a good chat and really enjoyed it. So... Over to my chat with Simon Ventvogel. This week we have 
another member from my local club down at the Pakenham Club here that is joining us. And his name actually came up in last week's podcast with Mike Farn. And so as soon as I heard his name, I thought, hey, we need to get him on. Simon Ventvogel, thanks for joining us here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Not a problem. Awesome. Glad you asked me. Well, Simon, tell us a bit about yourself, like where you live, what do you do for a living, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm um, retired now. I was a, a printer by trade and uh, in that industry my whole life, newspapers and um, uh, scratch-off lottery tickets and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, retired now, so plenty of time to fly. I call it the dying art of printing. It 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 is. It's um no, it's it's very sad because um the like even newspapers. I was in um, newspapers, uh, sort of the first last part of my, oh, the first and the last part of my working career, and um yeah, it's very sad that it's actually dying. But it's um if people don't pay to advertise, they can't afford to produce a paper, so it slowly goes down the tubes. Unfortunately, I know what that's like because Flat Out RC magazine had a bit of a problem. Yeah. People didn't yeah. realise that uh, my biggest expense was the printing expense. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, uh, Rupert Murdoch reckons he hated um, delivery vans and printing presses. They were the most expensive part of his business. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I love print, though. I, I still, every night, I, I'm reading motorbike magazines at the moment, and I, every night now I look forward to turning my, my lamp on next to my bed and I... Get in bed, pull the magazine over and say, okay, where are we up to tonight? Let's read a few articles and then put it down. I, my, of course, my wife keeps on yelling at me because I've got magazines everywhere. But, yeah, uh, no, I, um, I'm a digital man, I'm afraid. I, really? Every, yeah, everything on, even though I used to do the analogue <laughs> printing, uh, no, nah, everything's uh, iPad and uh, my wife's the same. She's converted. Uh, I do like I like I've been reading sundry um, books, biographies, and things like that on my phone. Which yep, yep, yep. I can get by with, but magazines. I, I actually I do have a I do have a digital subscription to one magazine. But yeah. Now you've been in the hobby for a long time. But yes, I started. Well, my father was also aero modeler, and um, so as he started off when he started, it was. Um, you know, uh, single channel, uh, rubber band powered servos, escapements uh, when I was about five or six. And then um, I obviously couldn't afford it then. So it was more I built sort of free flight planes and stuff like that. So it was always, yeah, going to, it was always going to be. And then um, as I got to, what, 15 and got a part-time job, I could afford to buy my own uh, radio gear and stuff. I did a bit of line control at first. And then um, got my first radio control set for Taba and built a uh, Invader. And um, Dad and I taught me to fly it. <laughs> and how did, how did that go? The it actually few flights? Went, it went surprisingly well because Dad, we both always loved aircraft, so we knew how they worked. And uh, the Invader was a very good training plane. It was just rudder and elevator throttle. And we used to fly down in where we lived in Elwood, uh, Elstonwick Park. It was like six or eight ovals in this huge That's space. Right. Yeah, so we started her up and I taxied around a bit. And then Dad said, what do you reckon? I said, yeah, I think I'll give it a go. And off it went and I could do it. It was kind of amazing. Yeah, so, you mentioned Elstonwick Park and that, that park means a lot to me because I grew up not far from there either. And it was the first. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I remember going, oh, that's where I flew my first plane. 
a glider. Yeah, it's like, well, same here, same here. They used yeah. to fly gliders there. I, I, yeah, I remember yeah. one day, I don't know, I didn't have a license, you know, I was a kid. And yeah. I remember driving past, my parents must have been driving me, and seeing these gliders and said, we have to stop. And I just fell in love with it. I looked at them and went, oh, this is just awesome. You know, bungee yeah. launch. Yeah, that's right. No, no, no. We we did a bit of that as well there. What era? What, what, what are we talking about when you started flying radio control? Oh, that'd be 70. Oh, so that's about 71, 72, somewhere. Yeah. And uh, because there was the first, it was one of the first proportional Fatabas came out. And um, yeah, there, so there was no official club there, but quite a few guys used to glide down there. And we yeah. did a bit of gliding down there as well. And then. Uh, Dad got more serious, so we joined uh, the Marks Club to, um, yeah, so to get in the sort of club environment. And that field was where? In Footscray at the time, or was it um, at their Ma- other? Uh, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, where it is, where it was now, across the other side of the road. Oh, really? Yeah, and then they had to move to the to the other side. And now they've gone. And, uh, unfortunately, yes, it was, uh, and it's a pity because it was one of the oldest clubs in um in uh, Mel- uh, Victoria. Yeah. So, uh, but no, we sort of joined there and then Dad, because Dad was never a super confident flyer, always very, uh, uh, what, keen. Mm. <laughs> but I ended up being a fair bit better flyer than him, which never bothered him. That was all right. And uh, met all. So I met a whole pile of uh, nice people like Tony Varnon and uh, Ian Watts and, uh, and all that crew. So okay, so you you're flying at Elswick Park, which by the way you can't do that nowadays. If no, they rejigged the whole park and ruined it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they, that's right. They, they trees and stuff. To, yeah, because it used to be one big open space. That's right. It Remember, was awesome. there used yeah. to be a BMX track there. Well, this was even before. I mean, it was that just was before huge. that. It was, was sensational. Yeah, I remember that. Well, I remember the BMX track because used to go there, and then they pulled that down and put a skateboard bowl in, and then. They oh, no, rejigged and put trees and like, well, there goes the bungee launch. The trees are right in the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the bungee launch used to be, God, that went right across the whole park. Yeah. To, you know, by the time you had it fully stretched out. That's right. Yeah. No, I love Elston. Yeah. Love Elston Park. Yeah, well, that was where I learned to fly and I did a bit of line control there as well. Yeah. And, uh, to get the sort of uh, hang of things. With the, uh, the inv- yeah, and the Invader was my first plane I actually built from scratch. We had a plan. Mm. And um, we built it from scratch off the plan. Oh, really? Off the plan? Yeah. And Dad had a OS 30 in a box lying around. And it was supposed to have like a 15 in it. So we put the 30 in it. It flew yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it flew great. Yeah. Yeah, and and so, like the, the concept of three channels really fascinates yeah. me because I, like, I, I love ailerons. And I yeah. love a rudder. <laughs> you know, yes. I, I don't like models that don't have a, don't have a rudder, but yeah. if I had to really choose, I'd probably take the ailerons over the rudder because, it, you know. Well, Dad, when we set it up, because a lot of people put the they put the rudder on the aerolon stick, and then when they yes. change the aerolons, they keep flying like that. We never did that. I I had the rudder on the rudder stick, so that's how I learned to fly. And then later on, when I put had a plane with aerolons, um, that was I could fly on the rudder and then use the lead in the aerolons when I wanted to. So you end up with very good rudder control as well. Because I used to be able to do um, like rolls and stuff like that on just on rudder. So, <laughs> so yes, you learn to fly very well. So then after the Invader, what did you set up, step step up to? Because we know that aeromodelers never have one aeroplane. 
No, then I got a middle stick. They grew up in a middle stick. Oh, did you? That was my first Aerolon plane, and that had a Webra uh, 40 speed in it, it was. And uh, that plane, I flew that literally till it fell to pieces. I just, I absolutely loved it. The, a stick always flies very well. Yeah, and, yeah, um, can't get wrong with stick. Yeah. No, and I flew it and flew it and flew it, and I think my I, I think my old man still got it. So it's oh really, my, yeah. I think he's still got it all soaked thing uh, up in his roof <laughs> where he keeps all his stuff. But uh, yeah, so that was a. And then I wanted to. By that time, I joined the Marksfield, and they were a lot all the a lot of the pattern guys, F three A guys, were there. So um, I got in. I want. I really wanted a pattern plane. That's what I was really uh, all about for the hobby. So I built a northerner and uh, that I was very, very proud of and uh, flew in a couple of comps, like the dockyard, the old dockyard, dockyard trophy, stuff like that. And uh, I flew beautiful. It, it only lasted, I think it lasted six months. And that was the first time I absolutely confetti the plane I cried because I was like 17 and I'd put so much, it was black, polished black. I spent so much time building this thing. And uh, because... When at the Marksfield with people like Ian Watts and stuff, they were superb, apart from being good flyers, they were superb builders and their planes were just immaculate. And I thought, I really want to build a plane like they build a plane, you know, beautifully painted, but shiny, uh, beautiful. So I tried to do that, but unfortunately I was practicing and made a mistake and stuck it in the ground. So, yeah. <laughs> what a loss. You're right. Yeah. You, you, I remember seeing a plane that my cousin got into flying. He actually joined the Packenham Club. This would have been late 80s or maybe in the early 90s maybe. And a yeah. guy helped him be, build, a, build a plane. And I'm sure one of those guys is still a member of the club. But uh, yeah. And I remember seeing this plane thinking, whoever built this plane did a phenomenal job. The, the covering yeah. was well, spot yep. on. There was not yep. – it, it was absolutely perfect, which – no, it's probably even better than ARF. It was that good. Well, this thing, this thing, I did the old um, tissue and dope, and then uh, talcum powder and dope, and got it all smooth, then undercoat and painted, and it weighed. It must have weighed a ton, but, but that wasn't so much of an issue back then. And um, and Dad had to convince everybody that he didn't build it for me; that I actually built it myself. So I must have done a reasonable job on it. And, uh, yeah. What well, back, back then in the seventies, flying some of this gear, how reliable was it? Now your servos well, and your motors and your transmitters. And no, all. they were no, they weren't it actually because I had um, then I by then I bought my first craft set, and uh, which, God, I don't know how many papers I had to deliver to pay for that. <laughs> and um, yeah, I bought my first craft set, and they were very good. They were they really were very. It was all pretty reliable stuff. The only uh, most crashes were from. The pilot error. I had a real bad one because I'd been flying all day, lost complete track of time, and it was flat batteries. So, I mean, I've got to say, over the years, I had very few crashes that weren't my fault. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people, they hold up the transmitter interference. Yeah, I know. And, uh, but but uh, what do you put that down to? Because I've got a theory on that, but I'm interested in your theory. And why do you think you it was mainly dumb thumbing it that caused the crashes, not not gear? I because of always um, dad was I've got to say dad was a bit pretty meticulous and I was meticulous and um, a lot of people if they have um, failures in aircraft a lot of it's just not put together properly or just not checking things 
and uh, I learned that especially with helicopters you had to look at that thing all the time especially in the early days because they they were pretty um unreal pretty maintenance intensive is a good way to put it. yeah they are <laughs> The, yeah. the my theory is that why is it that when we go on an average club day, why is it the really bad planes that are, are crashing? Like you never see, you don't very often see the good planes where people have built them well, spent time, bought good gear in them, um, crashing. It's it's always some well, clunker that seems to be going yeah. in. And the thing is, like when you've like with iMac, the guy, we rarely have a crash on the weekend, very rarely, you know, because. They're very expensive, sort of beautiful planes, and people don't want to wreck them. And it's amazing how many, you know, IMAC planes might change hands um, two or three times before anything happens to them. So maybe it's because they're more expensive, people are more uh, looking after them more. Or, I think so as well. Or they fly that type of plane, so they're pretty good modelers to start with. Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned helicopters, and I want to have a bit of a chat about helicopters. Yes, I, I didn't know that you were, you were pretty big into helis. Now, oh, I, I am fascinated about the early days of helis, and, and obviously you were there. Yeah, you, you sort of said that it wasn't that great, but what got you into helicopters? Dad bought a you know the Schluter Cobra, yeah, the original one. Yeah, Dad bought one of those. A friend of his went overseas on business, and Dad, I don't think you could get them here then. And yeah. uh, he asked this guy if he would bring one, one back. So he, there was, so it was two boxes. It was a mechanical box and then the fuselage, because the fuselage on that thing was six foot long. Oh. It was pretty big. Yeah, it was a pretty big model. So he got the mechanics back here. The guy brought them with him on the plane, and then he freighted the, the fuselage out. So Dad built this thing, and I was, I was honestly like, what is the point of helicopters? I don't understand. You know, I was mad on the planes. And then Dad built it got it going and i had a go of it and i couldn't do it so that was it i thought i've got to get this figured because it was nothing like a plane it was so hard to do so i bought a, a futaba humming which was an absolute piece of crap and you spent more time fixing it than uh, flying it and then i convinced my wife at the time because we were only just married um, that I needed to buy a Schluter Heli Boy, so I bought that. And that was that changed everything. That was yeah. amazing. Yeah, because yeah. at the time, think back now, that was a pretty crappy quality kit. But at the time, it was pretty good, and they were not cheap. They were pretty expensive things. Plus, you didn't have ra uh, heli radio or heli motors or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. no gyros, yeah, as my wife just said. And so you had to – so, yeah, I bought the Heli Boy. And used to, <laughs> mum and dad lived in uh, Altona Meadows when it was all new estate. So I used to go there with this thing and walk around, uh, sort of walk behind it for kilometres. <laughs> really? Yeah, trying to figure out how to hold it. And uh, and finally, and no gyro, you had to set it up. There was a mechanical mixer between the pitch and the tail rotor to, uh, that you had to set up really well to get it to fly um, reasonably well. And so I got to the point where I could actually hover it. And then um, luckily I wasn't a bad plane flyer by then. And Dad said, <laughs> what do you reckon? So I opened up the throttle and off we went. And it flew like a really bad plane. <laughs> but I managed to, yeah, but I managed to do a couple of circuits and then come back in and sort of hover and land. And that was it. I was just hooked. That was, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so, uh, yes. And then so we sort of started from there. But they were, I said, I had my, used my craft. Um, 
aircraft radio and just a, a Weber Speed 60 and uh, went from there. And that was when you crashed. You had to buy blade. You had to build the blades yourself. Oh, and really? It was no. Yeah, and it was. And the Heli Boy was a bit hard to get parts for as well. But so luckily, Dad had a, a lathe. So a lot of times when I, because you used to crash a hell of a lot, and um, and also just reliability like tail rotor gears and stuff like that. So Dad built made a lot of stuff um, on the lathe that uh, for parts that were hard to get. And so and they were much more. Back then, they were much more. Um, you needed to know what you were doing when you built it, because you had to dial in, you know, uh, starter shafts, and um, it was not just a matter of slapping it. Through. Like these days, the the instructions and the way they're made is so amazing that uh, they when if you build it like they say in the booklet, it'll work. But Dan and I had my had our Sluter Bible and uh, the the heli, and sort of had to figure it out from there. Plus, we knew nobody who flew helicopters so it was um as far as we knew um we were it and uh yeah no like we take it for granted now like you said we see these modern day helis and the way they fly with their gyros and all you know fly ballast and all that kind of thing and you just think you know it's just so much easier the first time i saw an rc heli was actually at elstonwick park there were two there were two guys set up i know exactly where it was can still remember it exactly where they were and i think they yeah. were um herobos or shuttles something like that or, shuttles yep. or something like yep. that yep. and uh yep. and there were two of them and, and, I, and of course they were having problems um you know, I yep, not seeing a lot of flying <laughs> it was more tinkering yeah. with the yeah. thing but uh yeah yeah but yeah i just i just don't get how how well how you could fly without the gyro it was very difficult and then we i managed to get a gyro um, a tail gyro when they just came out it was a i think it was a jr and put that in i couldn't believe how much easier that made it and then by that time my wife and i'd moved to um, mount evelyn so i was flying at croydon and there was a guy there who was also flying a heli phil thornton his name was and he was flying a little Grotner helimax because they were starting to become a, a little bit more popular then. Yeah, yeah. And then he told me about these guys that fly at Brayside with Max Tandy and Rob Barbudo and all that crew. And um, so I uh, got a phone call one night from because I could fly it pretty reasonably by then. And I got a phone call from a guy called Barry Hendy and he said, oh, we're having the state champs at Doncaster. Do you want to go in them? And I'm like, oh, No. And he's like, you know, there's not many of us and come down. And so I thought, yeah, all right. So I went down and I met all those guys. And it turned out they were a hell of a nice, very nice bunch of guys. And I met uh, Rob Barbuto. You want to talk old Heli? Talk to Robert, Rob Barbuto. He, he's a legend in his own lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I met all them. So that got me really fired up. And then I sort of flew, because I'd started with Schluter helicopters, so I sort of stuck with them through Nick. Boffy, you know Nick? No, oh. no, he was a, he was pretty big and heli um, selling Schluter and stuff. And then I got a phone call from Mike Farnan, and they because Rob and John then they were sort of the top guys. They were the guys you had to beat, and they were then by then had a fair bit of help from ABC Hobbies, I think it was, and then. Uh, Mike said, look, uh, we've got the agency to bring in Colt helicopters. Would you be interested in 
helping us promote them. And um, I said, yeah, because that sort of helped me out. So he offered, yeah, exactly right. My wife just pointed out. Plus, I'd known Tony since I was like 16. Right. And uh, well, I had, he was actually at Mark's, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I had, but I hadn't had a lot to do with Mike at that up to that point. So Mike said, "Well, if you are willing to um, help me get to the hang of helicopters, and um, we will look after you as far as pricing and stuff like that, which mm. was great." And Colt were very good helicopters. So um, yeah, that then I got really serious with uh, competition and stuff like that, and helping Mike. And Mike was just he just does easy anyway because he was already like Australian buggy champion or something. So yeah, so we sort of Mike and I sort of pushed um, Colt uh, here, which were yeah very nice. So I ended up with a couple of beautiful. They were called um, Jet Streams, which is like a streamlined Jet Ranger sort of body. Well, yeah, it's interesting with that though. Oh, a lot of the, all the competition helis back then had a fuselage, basically, didn't they? They at that yes, uh, like when we went to the world champs, I um, that was a real eye opener as far as what the Japanese and especially Japanese and Americans were flying. Was that was just on a different planet? Their their helis were just absolutely beautiful, and they had. One, like uh, the Haroba was called a black shark. I think it was a beautiful looking thing. And um, so I had these streamlined sort of jet range fuselages. And it was also the speed they were flying was nothing. They were absolutely honking these things. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, like they do the hover, the hovering manoeuvres, uh, and they had this really low sort of hot, uh, rotor speed, sort of And then uh, when they took off out of the top hat to do the aerobatics, these things were absolutely Hoon along, and um, but the, we found out the fuel they were using, they were running like I think they were running like 25% nitro in these things because the we were using 60s, that was the limit, and so these poor old 60s were because the, the helis were the same size as like a 700, which later on they put a like a, up to a 90 in or even more. So we had these 60s with tube pipes, and the engines I used to blow up engines all over the place, but to get them to to go yeah <laughs> so but we ran this so we got onto this fuel that they had sort of rocket fuel they use with 20 uh, percent. and mike started bringing um this mixture of fuel in and it was uh, very high oil very high nitro and it made such a difference to the performance of the engines because also it put, put, with the oil the amount of oil it passed so much fluid through the engines that kept them cool as well but they used to smoke like crazy yeah but that sort of made then you sort of when you saw that in the nineties, you was uh, that's you. It made you realise how you supposed to fly F three C especially. So yeah, so we all sort of um, wanted to emulate the the way the Japanese and Americans flew, um, speed and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, Curtis Youngblood, he was just amazing. That's what Mike said last week. He said that Curtis Youngblood was his favourite. He did stuff that before heading hold gyros and stuff, he had like uh, the the JR uh, mechanical gyro, you know, with the brass wheels on the motor. And him and his old man used to tweak these gyros and the stuff he could do with that helicopter, no one could do. It was just he could do all that backward stuff uh, because he flew single stick as well, so he had the knob on the top of the stick. And so he, and with the knob on top, it doesn't matter which way around the helicopter's facing, the knob still goes around the same way. Yeah, so he was doing all this backward loops and backward rolls and not like one, like arsing one every now and then. He was just doing them 
all the time. And we just, just looked and thought, how the hell is he doing that? It was amazing. And it wasn't until um, heading whole gyros came in that other people could start to do that stuff. He was just way. And he did all that. He was the true uh, sort of starter of that 3D heli flying. Yeah. And it, it's amazing yeah. how it, it, sometimes it takes that one person to take the hobby in a different direction and we see – you know, the likes of uh, Kike Somanzini as an example. And, exactly. Um, yeah, holding yeah. an aeroplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. That, and, that, and then the technology sort of tries to keep up, you know. Yeah. New aircraft come out, new engines and radio gear or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing to see that development of Halley's really. And, and you would have witnessed it from the early days all the way up well, to I, now. And it's, I used to re obviously read modelling magazines and there's a picture of a guy in America called Mike Mass. And he was hovering this helicopter upside down. And I thought, oh, shit, I've got to do that. And so I bought a, at the time, the when you when the first heli radios came out, they had an invert switch on them. And so you'd flip the heli over and flip the switch, switch. and it would fly like a normal helicopter, but you're upside down. And I've got a, actually got a picture of me still flying my uh, champion long ranger, hovering that upside down. And, um, yeah, and that would have been, I reckon, that I would have had to have been the first. I don't know of anybody else that was uh, doing it at the time. And then uh, Rob and John went to the States for the Worlds. And when they came, when Rob uh, John came back and he said, oh, they don't use the invert switch, they set it up on the stick. So you pull the stick back and it's negative, you push it forward and it's positive. And I thought, oh, shit. So that was a whole new thing to learn. And, uh, that, and that was a, a lot harder, but it made it, it made the helicopter then, really 3d that's then right you could, yeah you know because yeah, you, you weren't flicking switches or nothing no exactly and that was amazing that was um do you still fly helis or you park that i haven't i've still got three of them and my jet streams i managed to uh i sold off the the nitro stuff and i converted my jet streams i fit one of them was a bit damaged so i fixed that up and put um uh, 700 electric mechanics in them but I've still got them, but I haven't flown them for ages, ages and ages. When did you stop competing? Oh, about 90, oh, God, 97, 98, something like that. Just yesterday, uh, 97. Yeah, it? because I was, by that time I was coming, like Rob and John were the two, Rob, Bub, you know, and John West were the two sort of top guys. And, oh, and another guy, Ian McDonald from yeah. um, Sydney. And... <laughs> I managed to. I think my best was second at the nationals, and um, and I think I got a couple of firsts in the states. But we used to fly the New South Wales state champs, um, Victorian state champs. I represented Australia with the Trans Tasman, yeah. went over to New Zealand. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, that was good because they got us um, like five, ten minutes each in in like an R twenty two trying to fly that full size. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then uh, yeah, and that. And they divided also the heli into because when I started it was just F three C that was it there was no lower things and then uh, Mike it was then in I think it was sportsman or something like that. he worked his way up to F three C and sort of ended up beating all of us because hmm. uh, <laughs> he yeah, it's very very good. And speaking of Mike Farnan, you were there when he did some long distance uh, I think the first long distance run. Yes, yes, that's right. We he did it on the well the sun. Razor, wasn't it? Yeah, Sunraysia Highway. Highway. He said he. Yeah, we out. did it out of a did it out of a um, Capri convertible 
Capri and he built this um, heli, I think it was an Ergo, and he put two one-litre, I think they were one-litre tanks yeah, on, the sides. on either side of it and um, done a lot of, did a lot of prep work on this thing to get it to fly uh, lightly. And I was his uh, backup pilot. And uh, I don't know how many, it was like 120 Ks or something he managed to do, fly out of this, um, out of the car. It was, <laughs> it was pretty good, actually. And, uh, yeah, and he sort of went, did got further and further and further. I think he held the, the world record for like three times or something. Yeah, so. he kept on breaking it. But the, uh, what was it like, that whole experience of, of going on that kind of adventure? Did it feel like an adventure or was it just, oh, like, yeah, let's yeah, go and yeah. do something Mike, crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Mike was pretty good with, um, like, the stuff like that like he'd say oh you want to come do this and then another time was uh the nationals were in queensland so we went up to queensland together to to uh, do the nationals and and then uh mike got an offer to fly in new zealand do uh heli demos in new zealand at wings over wanaka so he said oh do you want to come along you know and he was good because he was a business person and like he'd negotiate this like with wanaka he said right we'll come over but you've got to pay our airfares you've got to pay petrol you've got to accommodation a whole lot so um, he did all that, and we get to see that it was um, it, the guy there in Wanaka has the biggest collection of World War Two, or had the biggest collection of World War Two aircraft in the Southern Hemisphere. I think. So, and at that on that particular uh, thing, I met Chuck Yeager, which was pretty cool. Oh, that'd be awesome! Yeah, it was. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah so he, so we do um, like flying. And then I was doing sort of, um, well, compared to these days, 3D, but it was 3D back then. So Mike could do it and I could do it. So he did it at one end of the runway and I did it at the other end of the runway. Oh, and um, Yeah, it was it was really, really good. And we were the only uh, model aircraft, the only RC models flying in this whole, because it was for full size. And, uh, for yeah, and it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. So, uh, yeah. Now, when did you get back into flying planes or were you flying planes at the same time? I never really didn't fly planes, but not as, um, you know, much, not as passionately. And then I got out of the hob. Well, never really got out of it, but certainly not as um, intensely as I had. And then uh, oh, maybe only probably six years ago, I, I still dabbled. And then six years ago, I reckon, I wanted to get more back into planes. And... Um, I started off with a, oh, about a, oh, yeah, it was actually a Giles, a, a oh, oh, yeah. CM, CM Pro Giles, that's yep. what that, with a one, OS 160. And uh, sort of dabbled then. And then um, Rob, Rob Abudo retired. And I thought, oh, and I was about a year off retiring. So he wanted to get back into the model aircraft. And, um, for, and then for some reason we decided to uh, get into iMac, get into bigger. Well, that's right. Bigger, like, so how long have you been flying iMac now? Oh, about three years. Yeah, okay. something like that. So and, you uh, came in with that influx of the new new Victorian blood, didn't you? Yeah, uh, Michael Andrusik did a come try because Rob and I by then had bought these big planes, and we sort of just wanted bigger planes. And then Michael. And Steve Malkman did this uh, intro to iMac at Pindars. Mm. And we got it, you know, everybody got invited if you wanted to come down. And we said, oh, so we, we did. And we both, it just caught us straight away. We thought, yep, we can, we're going to do this. And then, uh, and there are, plus the iMac guys are a very nice 
it's a nice fraternity. It really is. They're all uh, they're all good blokes, very helpful, and uh, and also. But Rob and I were both then, you know, I mean, we're pretty good flyers, so we didn't have to really learn uh, what we only had to learn the intricacies of iMac, not actually how to fly a plane, and then it just got worse. And worse yeah. <laughs> as, as far as yeah, so and him and I then we we went into basic and both of us got enough points in three comps to go up to sportsman, and then um, so we got through that pretty quick and then we wanted bigger planes and then um, yeah, but then uh, we lost the year because of COVID of course because we had no comps at all. Yeah, and then in the meantime, my wife and I have moved into an apartment, so I'm building oh, my no. planes. Yeah, well, my wife is a very tolerant woman, I must say. She always has been. So I'm building these. Um, well, the last one I built was a, is a three meter. And uh, <laughs> your wife is very, very patient because if she- <laughs> I attempted to build a three meter plane inside the house, yeah, yeah, no, she is. Well, the thing is, she. Well, it's not about you, John. Sorry. Um, <laughs> No, she because Liz was also very, very supportive of the helicopter. She realised it was not just a flash in the pan hobby, and uh, I was very passionate. So she was very supportive. Like she used to come out with me to practice um, my hovering and stuff like that. Old romantic bloke I am. I used to take her to this lonely oval in Richmond and practice my <laughs> hovering. <laughs> That's perfect. So, yeah, and she used this um, sort of, and we had, we actually got, we took it very seriously. We had walkie-talkies. And she used to tell me if I was over the flag. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And she actually judged a couple of comps as well. She knew exactly what she was looking oh, at. Oh, Yeah, too good. Well. So, uh, no, so she's, there's never been a, you know, she knows it. So, and plus, she's a bit of a muse, so she knows when something is your passion. There's nothing you can do about it. It just yeah. is. So. Well, so, so what are you building now? At the moment, I'm building a three meter. Um, I've got a 2.6 krill extra mm-hmm. uh, SC uh, with a DLA 116 in it, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. And I bought. I had no intention of buying a three meter, but um, krill in where they're built in Yugoslavia had uh, Czechoslovakia had this one on special, and. Um, it was exactly the same as my 2.6, but at the three meter, 3.1 meter version. And so I emailed them and he said, yeah, we'll get in contact with Ludo. And I'd already had dealings with Ludo Lacroix by then. And he said, yeah, I'll get it out here uh, for you. So, uh, so I'm putting that together at the moment. So, What's uh, that going to yes. have in it? It'll have a, a DLA 180 um, through, because Michael Lou. Is the DLA agent? He's trying to push because they're very good engines. I'm not just saying that; they really are. And um, like the 116 is just it's it puts out because I was a bit worried that it'd be have a bit less than a 120, but it certainly hasn't. It's a, it's a rocket. So uh, and what about yes, servos? And that, and, what servos? What servos are you putting in that? They're uh, oh, I'm putting a um, oh a boomer. Yeah, boomer. On the the forty four kilo on the elevators and yeah. the forties on the aerolons and yeah the other one I've got I've got uh, GoTex in that which are um, sort of good well good Chinese servos I suppose <laughs> and uh, but the boomers are yeah they're nice they're very tight very nice servo and they've are you running their distribution board as well 
Yeah, actually what we've decided to do is uh, I'm going to run 12 volts or 11.1 um, through regulators to a, a, you know, what do you call it, board, distribution board. Not the AR one, I'm using the, F, the FreeSky one. And then uh, and then the whole system's 8.4, so it'll be regulated down to 8.4 and run everything on, on that. Um, so that way you need, uh, what are we running, 3,000 milliamp, two pack, two mil. 3,000 milliamp packs, and then uh, dual receivers, so double redundancy on everything. Yeah. And what what radio uh, are you using? I, I fly a FreeSky, an, an X12S, and um, which, yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of people say FreeSky, and they're like, no. Like one of our friends, Richard, he flies with it, and he loves yeah, he's, it. And yeah, there's a, he's a so, so much you can do with them, and they're yep. affordable as well. Well, with the open, the open TX would scare a lot of people off. But once you get your head around it, it's actually, there's nothing you can't do. If you can think of it, you can do it. It's amazing. Like, um, you know, flight conditions for in different stick positions and all that sort of stuff. You can do so much. And also, um, there's a few good, uh, what, well-known modelers that are sort of pushing uh, FreeSky a bit because they really are very good. I've never, ever had a problem. And um, as far as like, no, I've just never had a problem. The only problem I ever had, I think my um, Aerolon spring broke on the gimbal. That was about it. But because uh, people go, as soon as you say free sky, they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, no, nah, it's, uh, it's good. And look, look at the some of the forums and people just rubbish like um, Spectrum and stuff like that. And God, I mean, so many people use Spectrum. They can't be that bad. Yeah, that's, that's my theory is that if, yeah. If there was something that was really bad, we'd all know about it because exactly, we, it's, yeah, experience them. Yeah, and it comes down to, as you said, um, how come it's always the shitbox planes that's crash because nobody cares. So when you're flying um, good stuff like jets and things like that, you need re- very reliable radio. We, you're relatively new to the IMAX scene. Yep. What would be your tips to anyone that is – wanting to get involved in IMAC because you've just been through that experience yourself? Well, number one is don't think you need a special IMAC plane because you can fly anything in BASIC. And BASIC is um, the manoeuvres are quite simple, but you can certainly learn what you need to do. When we, when we, when I first flew BASIC and Michael Andrusik, and I thought I was fantastic, and uh, Michael pointed out pointed out that I wasn't, so <laughs> because because he said, "Oh, do you realise you're being judged the whole time? Because when you uh, when you line up, come in, you call in the box, and from that time, you the whole sequence is judged. There's not a, a second that you're not judged until you say out of the box, which is at the end of the whole sequence. So every single correction, uh, every movement, uh, everything." is judged and you have like uh, every five degrees is half a point and so if you go five degrees one way that's half a point and then you correct it that's another point so and the points start adding up and you'd be surprised how quickly you run out of points so the so get a yeah i would say get a plane that you're comfortable with and it doesn't matter what it is and learn to fly it uh, very precisely and very neatly you know and know you've got and you've got to trim your aircraft as best you can to get it to fly um where you're not doing a lot golds like peter goldsmith said you the less work you do 
the better you'll fly. And um, with and then later when you go to uh, say sportsman, you get a like a two point three or a two point six. Um, there, then you're getting a plane that is well. They're actually easier to do that the flying with because that's what they're designed to do. And um, yeah, and it's and just practice, practice, practice. That's it. And then and listen to the guys you know better because I'm a little bit. Um, I was a little bit. Yeah, I know what I'm doing, and you don't. So, <laughs> so you got to listen to people like uh, Michael Andrusek and um, Scott up in. Uh, New South, and um, you know, they, and they're just being uh, helpful. And if you if you listen, um, and they, they, you know, they, and they can, they don't criticise. They just say, "Oh, if you did this, it was like it." Michael actually commented. Michael Andrusek commented to me. He said, "Oh, you guys, every time you fly, you seem to do what we've told you to do from the previous thing. Like, uh, you know, leave and gap, leave your gaps. Make sure you got fuselage lengths in between manoeuvres." Um, uh, don't fly fast. You don't need to go screaming around the sky. That was my biggest problem at mm-hmm. first. Was yeah, you think you've got to go fast. really fast? No. Yeah, and you don't. No. And um, also from helicopters, the learning, knowing how to use the rudder is super, super important. Because um, I mean, I've never been to a competition yet. Well, no, very rarely where the weather is beautiful. It's always a crosswind and it's always crappy. So you're hanging on to the rudder the whole time. So you're and so the other thing is you're you must set up your plane um, as best you can as far as uh, vertical up lines, down lines, um, CG position of the plane, uh, make the plane as absolutely as neutral as possible, but still the way you like it, so still comfortable. And, um, yeah, and it doesn't – and the, the plane can be oh, – I mean, there's so many good IMAC planes out there. They're all, you know, and there's a bit of debate about whether composite or – but it does. I don't think it makes any difference. It's the pilot. I mean, in Europe, in Europe they fly a lot of composites. In America, they seem to fly 50-50. Um, a lot of the guys here fly uh, built up, you know, with um, film. And they all fly fantastic. And, uh, yeah, there's this. Yeah. I, I always say it is the pilot. You can you can get a great pilot, give them the worst plane, they make it look good. And you know, I've been I've seen some top top freestyle aerobatic pilots overseas, and uh, and. You know, they'll test fly somebody's plane. I'll go up to them and say, how was it? And they said, oh, yeah, it's okay. I'm like, yeah. well, it looked pretty good from here. I couldn't yeah. see any problem from, from here. <laughs> well, that's like, um, you know, Glenn Orchard. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it doesn't matter what plane Glenn flies. He can make it do beautiful point rolls, slow rolls, four-point roll, eight-point roll. doesn't matter what he flies. They all, he does them with any plane. So, you know. And my favourite manoeuvre, the landing. I've never seen him fluff a landing. <laughs> Yes, but that's the thing though with iMac and F3A, um, and more so with iMac because they're big planes, they're heavy planes. So you cannot, you know, like a sports do, you sort of put it, you do a rough landing, you sort of dust it off and fly again. iMac plane, you'll always break something. You must land properly. You, you know, you must. It's not like the yeah, your flying's not over until you've actually landed and the plane stopped because. Um, they will break something if you run off the end of the strip or something like that because there's a lot of weight behind them. But they're an absolute pleasure to fly once you yeah. get there. I'm, well, I'm an, I'm an aerobatics guy. You know, yeah. I've been flying my um, 3D Hobby Shop Slick 120cc yep. and, and yep. bring that into land 
is just a dream. It's just you can just settle it down so nicely. And if you're yep. not, you're being stupid. But it's yeah, it you know, bigger does fly better. Yeah, and, and I was never daunted when I when I first flew my hundred cc up. It was like, oh, you got to watch out. And I'm like, why? I already mentally prepared for it that this is going to yep. be fine. Like, yep. you know, I know that a bigger plane is going to be easy, and it was a non-event, absolute non-event. Yep. It was like this is easy. Well, they're they're more visible. Yeah. They react um, slower. They, yeah, and if they fly them, yeah, they make you look better when you, you know, the bigger ones. Well, they don't rock so, around as much in the air. It's like, no, nah, you know, nah. I'm I I set my planes up with a pretty, you know, my low rate is pretty low, so yeah. um, I like a pretty slow roll rate to fly smoothly. It just, yep. you know buys your time when things happen slower and so you can make yep. sure you can stop the wings level when it's not rolling out of control kind of thing and yep. so it's i i find it you know that it's it is easy to fly precisely and especially if the wind gets up a little bit of you know it doesn't get blown around like some of the small and also planes. the 100s and 120s i reckon they've got the best uh, power to weight ratio for planes that's why a lot of most of the three 3d guys use that yeah, size plane that's right the three meters because they got massive yeah, yeah, they do. They overroll, and so and the other ones are a bit too small. So the the two point six is just and plenty of power um, compared to because I think they've got actually more power to weight than a like a three meter. They, I think, and they then would. the three meter. Yeah, but and the problem with the three meter is um, is the prop noise is horrendous. It's uh, like on the two point six, it's caught, you can keep it under control pretty because you get scored on prop noise on noise, and it's mainly prop noise. So the more noise you make, the lower uh, your noise score. Um, so you must learn throttle control and, and throttle management, mainly to keep your prop quiet. And on the bigger ones, that's really hard. That's um, because they rip just because then you're swinging a like a 31 inch prop, so at 6,000 RPM, so it gets it starts ripping pretty easy. But uh, and the other thing is motor reliability motor tuning and reliability i mean when you go to a comp um it's very rare to see a plane that's not running properly they they seem to want need to make them run very well and they do they're very very reliable you rarely have an engine off in the comps you know like other people um yeah it's a yeah it's a and yeah and also have to be meticulous with your building with your um um like make sure, especially on a like a two point six and up, uh, everything is double redundant, uh, receivers, batteries, um, switches, all that sort of stuff. It always amazes me with the F three A guys. They got such beautiful, expensive planes, and they'll run one switch. I don't get it. And they go, oh, it's weight, but I mean, like a JR gold switch doesn't cost that much. I wouldn't have thought. So I'd, I'd certainly have two of them, but you know. Well, the um. Yeah, that well, those those pattern guys are always chasing weight, aren't they? They're lighter and lighter. Oh, have, to the yeah. Have, have you ever flown a modern day pattern plane? No, I haven't. Oh, I have to amazing. sponge it because for me, I'm a mode two flyer, so it's not so. Oh, motor champions! To, uh, I'm a yeah, mode two yeah. flyer as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's not so easy to sort of sponge a fly. <laughs> yeah, well, I look forward to flying a krill then. It'd be great. Thanks for that. Thanks for the offer yes. now that we're fellow mode tours. <laughs> I always say motor champions. It's easier <laughs> for helis though, isn't it? Mode two always. I think so. It makes more sense because the stick is where the swashplate goes is where you point the stick. 
one stick. Not, to, but having said that, uh, people like Rob and that they fly mode one and they did a fine job. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yes. I don't know how you do, you know, that Piro flips and yeah, stuff. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you do them mode one. I, no. I wouldn't no. understand that because on mode two you're stirring one stick. That's right. So I don't really understand how you would, um, but they do. Well, it's the same with um doing like uh, I get on the sim sim with Brad Worm and and he, we were talking yeah. about um rolling Harriers, and yeah. he's yeah. saying that on mode one it's easier than mode two. Yeah, I can never I, understand the concept. But I, anyway, I I think with Brad Worm it wouldn't make any difference what mode he was flying personally, because well, so, he's just yeah him and that other there's another Riley. young Kato. Oh, Kato no, Werner. Yeah, Riley Kato Werner. Unreal. Oh, Kate, well, Kate, oh no, Cato. Since he was a kid, yeah, well, young little kid. He he's been kid. <laughs> well, well, you know, well, he's still a kid. But like he was, you know, five yeah. years ago, six years ago, he used to. Yeah, I used well, to run an event out at Ararat, um, f- uh, freestyle or three D event, just fun flying, and he used to come with his dad, Matt, and he was flying foamies yep. back then because his dad yep. wouldn't put him on bolsa yet. Yep. And then he well, progressed to a thirty cc, and yeah. and just kept on going from there. But and I've been on the sim with him as well, and he's hilarious. Well, when we just, I just got back from Echuca last week. Yep. And I, I came in sportsman, I came third to Brad and Kato. No, did you? Yeah. So it's the next generation, see? Yeah, exactly right. And they're just doing it too easy. It's not fair. No, it's it's young kids, you know. Yeah, Brad's going up to uh, uh, the intermediate. I think Kato's not far behind him. And I'll be going up to intermediate. So they're coming. We're all going together. Yeah. So that should be. That oh. should be interesting. That the next level. Brad's my sim buddy. He, he, well, he, he keeps on sending me messages. Last week, he's probably sent me four messages. Sim tonight. I'm like, yeah, sorry, no. got work to do tonight, or sorry, I'm out for dinner, or blah blah. blah. What's that to... on? Like uh, real flight, real flight. Yeah? yeah, we get on all the yeah. time. Yeah, I've got to do that one day. Oh, it, it's. I love. I'm a big fan of sims. It's it's my way of oh. keeping my fingers in check. And, and yeah, I've got the well. As I didn't, as I said, when I didn't fly a lot for quite a while, but I did always um, do sim, and uh, that definitely works because even things like in the intermediate, the next one of the maneuvers is the first quarter of a rolling circle, and I couldn't do that a few months ago, and then I did it on the sim, and I did it to the left and to the right on the sim, and I got to the field, I said to Rob, oh, I'm going to try the part of the rolling circle and I could and I did it straight away it was not brilliant but um from not being able to do it at all so it definitely helps there's no it doesn't it's not the same as flying for real but it's uh, it's the stick movements it's exactly if I want to do a knife edge circle I've trained my brain on what to do I don't have to think about it and then when I go and do it like it's, it, hold it like just knife edge flight, and then I do like a knife edge circle and loop around in yeah. knife edge, right? Almost like do a circuit in knife edge, and I'll I practice that on the sim, a lot of knife edge stuff, and I've I've basically trained my brain and my fingers to know instinctively what to do to do that. And when I get out of the field, of course, I'll do it higher up than what I do it on the sim. Yep. But yep. I always say to myself, you know what to do. Your, your fingers will know exactly yep. what to do by themselves, and it's that repetition that the sim gives allows you to do. To yeah, build up that muscle, muscle memory. Muscle memory, yes, and that's, if there is you know, such a thing. Again, I always, it, I always talk about my mate Ido Segev, who used to always talk about this. He said, it's always, yeah. Andrew, it's about the neural pathways. That's all you're yeah. developing through through repetition on the simulator. And because he flew freestyle events yeah. you know, at, to music, you had one chance. 
and you'd be nervous. So he was taught by a sports psychologist is to build up muscle memory through repetition so that yep. your your fingers just know what to do instinctively even whilst you're shaking. So Well I I got into indoor foamies for a little while. Yeah, they're good and, fun. Um, Did that yeah, well. so I thought I bought the, the foamy and we went down to the indoor and I thought, yeah, I'll be able to do this, no problem. And no way. I was smashing the walls and all sorts of stuff. So then I got home. I could fly it, but not confidently. So then I thought, no, you got to learn to hover. If you can't hover a foamy, you're not going to be able to fly inside. So I on my sim, I uh, oh, it took me a week or more to finally get Hover, you know, confident hovering, and went to the indoor the next month and could hover, could hover a foamy indoors from the and learning from the sim, and it made such a difference because then you could stop, you know, and hang around for a while and then take off again. Yeah, where and, were you doing uh, indoor? Was it Doncaster? Or? Uh, we I went there once, but at the time it was to do with the Marks Field, so it was actually in Altona on the other side of town, a, a basketball stadium there, and it wasn't very big; it was only two courts, so it was a bit tight. But there was a guy there. Do you heard of Tony Driver? Yeah. Yes. Well, he he, he used to fly um, indoor there, and he was very good at that as well, of course. And um, but that was a pretty tight um, thing. But it was yeah. Once you got it, it was fantastic. I loved. I lo- we did. I did a, a fair bit of indoor with a bunch of guys, and yeah, with the, the foamies, and um, so much fun. Does someone still do it? Uh, apparently, it. I saw a Facebook post that some of the pattern guys are doing something. At, I don't know where, but they they were doing something. The, the challenge with it was um, numbers, that there was a peak. Yeah. And we did it for a number of years, two or three years. Yeah. Um, on yeah, a Sunday, yeah. like once a month on a Sunday down at Doncaster in the evening. Yep. And yep. we had a ball. And then the, the, it got to a point yep. where people sort of moved on and there was nobody else to replace him in a kind of way and then it just didn't become viable because we had to pay and it was $10 for the evening, yeah, which yeah. wasn't an issue, but you'd still needed to get 10 people at well, least. I used, to, I used to take a plane and a 450, a heli, a yeah. 450. And, um, yeah, the helis were great inside, except when the 450 had plastic blades, so when a foamy got too close to you, you hit it. <laughs> and, uh, the foamy had shred and the chopper would just be still hovering and you weren't. <laughs> a mate of mine came to an indoor event and he brought his little E-flight indoor plane and they're really, really lightweight. And most of us are flying you know, RC factory sort of uh, planes that are a bit more robust foam-wise, a bit, bit bigger in size as well. Yeah. I'm not joking. His plane lasted half a circuit <laughs> before it got collected and there was nothing left of it. It was, yeah, it was months yeah. in one yeah. fell swipe of the propeller. There was nothing left. I said, yeah, those planes don't last here unless they're up by yourself. You need to go and buy one of these uh, RC factory kind of planes. But, um, yeah, yeah. Now, we, because uh, my wife and I live in an apartment and we've got the underground car park and there's enough room there. I fly the foamy down there sometimes. And, yeah, when everybody's cars are gone for the day. And uh, <laughs> so that's quite uh, handy. Yeah, for sure. You didn't get into any other scale planes or gliders or anything like that over the years? Uh, no, a little bit of glider. I got a four-metre um, LS8. Um, but it I don't know. I always end up going back to, like, with I started off with aerobatics, F3, F3A, sort of um, when I was younger, and then the heli aerobatics, and then the now iMac aerobatics. It's just, yeah. I, I've never got 
big on I've got a Mustang that's half built that was going to be my scale project. Um that's sort of two point five or two point four, I think it is. Um but yeah, I always end up just going back to flying aerobatics. And that was the thing with Rob and I when we retired and got back in the hobby and you think oh, I'll just do it as a hobby and you can't because you never have. So you have to do it in some sort of competition uh, mode. Because Cliff McIver said to me, because I've known Cliff for a hell of a long time, and he said, you and Rob were never just going to be flyers. You can't. You're just used to. Um, and I don't mind going and practising. I mean, we both really enjoy it to get it better and better and better. And now, of course, uh, we go during the week. That way it gives the guys on the weekend uh, the field as much as possible. And we go during the week sort of to, uh, usually two times, sometimes three times if comp's coming up. And uh, no, it's um, fantastic. I think the and, the thing that I love about aerobatics and even the iMac and things like that is, if if you're a bit of a daydreamer at the field, just you know wandering around with your plane, getting bored of it. Well, um, working on aerobatic maneuvers, especially things like iMac pattern, that kind of thing, it gives you a purpose yeah. to your flying, and that keeps exactly. you engaged. That's why, like yeah. I, I actually have learnt iMac sequences for the point yeah. of practice of when I go to the field. Yep. Practice something. Don't just yep. sit there and fly around and go, okay, what am I going to do now? And I'll learn the sequence on the simulator so I memorize it, yep. like a basic yep. sequence, and then I'll go out to the field and I'll, and then I'd, so I don't need a caller. And I just practice my rolls and practice the sequence and see how how smooth I can get. Actually, last time I yep. had my 100cc out, Stevie Malkin was with me and yep. Stevie's <laughs> going to come on the podcast at some point in time. And um, he goes, do you want to go through the basic routine? I said, yeah, okay. Um, you know, I know I can fly the maneuvers, and I actually surprised myself. I flew it okay, except I, I'm really bad at knowing the names of the maneuvers. Really yeah, bad. I, I know what they look like, and yeah. I've probably got my own definition of what they're called. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm sitting there going, "Stevie, just tell me what what am I supposed to be doing here? Forget about the name. Yeah. Just yeah, describe that, that, it to me, and that I'll do that." Maneuver with the with the pointy bit on the bottom. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. stuff like that. So, so you haven't had you haven't had Steve on the podcast? No, no, I'm going to. I, oh, you should I, get. I am. I, yep. I actually I sent him a message the other day, and he's got a lot on his plate at the moment. So yeah, he said after the next IMAC comp at Packingham, he said he'll be free. So um, so well, you no. better give yourself five hours or something. Oh, I, I know it's, <laughs> that's going to be a four part series. I think <laughs> nah, part one good. of Stevie and part two of Stevie. But uh, he actually uh, Rob actually had to fly his uh, extra extra big extreme flight uh, on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a more weapon. It is. That's got a yeah very that rips. nice. That's. That, yeah, like crazy, and um, it's a little bit of a problem at the club at the moment. We, well, I was there. We did some testing. We were doing yeah, some sound yeah, testing because yeah. my 100cc rips pretty bad. But yep. It's the problem yeah. I got, and it doesn't help. But uh, but we worked out that if you actually fly an IMAX sequence, you can it won't rip. It's when no, you, if, if you yeah. floor it in certain yep. manoeuvres, it starts to rip. Yep. But it's like yeah. my 100cc that rips that – you know, it's anything sort of above three quarter throttles in certain orientations, it will start to rip. But you yeah. can actually use throttle management to 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 tame the tame the sound. Well, in yeah. in iMac, like the flat bits, um, the flat straight bits, you're sort of half to three quarters about right. And as you pull up to vertical, you feed in power, and because you, it's rare that if you rip in the up lines, you've got your props undersized. You've got to have a bigger prop, and um, so you can, yeah, you can certainly control it that's for sure I it's mean, often you, that transition you're, when you're going from level flight say as you're arcing around and pulling up and yep. we, we found sort of maneuvers where you 
have to fly away from yourself. Like, you know, you fly, you're flying straight and level from right to left. You pull the plane to the right. And as it's going to the right, it starts to rip a bit kind of thing. Yep. But, yep. Um, but we worked out that, you know, like I don't need full throttle to go vertical on my 100cc. If I, I no. can do it at three quarters and yep. I'll be fine. It won't rip. Yep. Uh, yep. And so, yeah, and I actually, I said to Stevie when I turned up with my plane, I said, Stevie, I, I see you've got a DB meter out. I'm going to tell you now, my plane is <laughs> noisy because it's got dump mufflers. A twenty-nine oh, okay. by nine prop, and it yeah. rips. All right, but it. Uh, but let's just play around, and we did. And, and yeah, I could. It does make noise, but it's the prop. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. No, you go to twenty-eight. What do you need? A Eleven or something. Yeah, twenty-eight ten. I've got a twenty-eight ten or something like that on yeah. my other hundred cc and extra that I've got. I've got plenty of planes sitting there. Because less um less diameter, less ripping. That's why three bladers work. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. I've seen people use twenty seven twelve and things like that as well. But uh, I had these twenty nine by nines. That's why I'm using it. But on my other plane, I've got a smaller <laughs> one. But uh, if I had to buy another prop, yeah, I'd buy a small one for sure. Yeah, and the Falcons and the Me- Falcons and Meslicks are they're a bit definitely quieter. I bought a Zua, and that is they are shockers. Really, I didn't yeah. realise how bad that was. I thought it'd be I thought it'd be quiet. It was it was absolutely terrible. But uh, it's amazing how much different um, a good propeller, like a good brand of propeller makes, that's for sure. Like you buy some of the cheap Chinese wooden ones and um, they work fine, but, geez, they're so loud. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know what? I notice the difference between a carbon prop and a, and a wood prop. Yep. I'd yeah, I, carbon. yeah, I used to think that was a load of rubbish, but it's not. No. <laughs> because no, definitely the, like, yeah, wooden blades are fatter. Um, the, the the carbons like the Falcon is a very slim blade, so yeah, and so they're more efficient and quieter, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. but they unfortunately the price of them is getting mad, and it's not like you can go, oh, my thirty one tens a bit fine, I better buy another one because it's like another three hundred dollars. You know? Oh shit, I said that out loud. My wife heard me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't mean that. You, but that you were talking in different um, denomination. It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh. It wasn't Australian dollars. It was lira. It's three hundred lira or something like that. Um, I tell you what, it's a, when you got when you have those props, it's amazing how well you learn to land. <laughs> yes, and I always I always put my prop covers on, and yes. uh, look after my my props. But um, yeah, now they do start to add up. We have the the pattern guys out at the club, and they always land their plane. They land, then they walk out and get the plane. I said, why don't you taxi back? And they said, because shoes are cheaper than propellers. It's true. <laughs> so, so they always carry them back. Oh, yeah. My problem is tail wheels. Some of these yes. planes, my 3D hobby shop planes, the tail wheels aren't really that robust. You know, they'll do the job, but I often will push the plane out with the tail up as much as I can. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, and I have been known to land the plane, turn the engine off, walk out, and then grab it, lift it up from its tail and drag it off the, off the runway just to protect the... Uh, the um the tail wheel the toe. well on the big ones they get my tail wheels it must be my tech they get absolutely flogged i think i stay on the ground too long so, yeah no but, um, the, the least amount of taxing that i can do the better yes. <laughs> you know yeah. I, actually i've got into a good habit you know a good landing for me is when i can land it and and then turn the plane straight off to like a taxiway to get it off. So you've got to position the the landing perfectly so you don't have to sit oh, there and turn. It, yeah, yeah. And you, yeah. you know, and I love that about aerobatic planes because they oh, they're easy to land. Yeah. Oh, and I love I do love the taxiing bit. I mean, I always um, taxi out. Yeah, I always taxi out properly and line it up in the middle and 
take off and I try and always land in the middle of the strip and yeah. uh, taxi back. And, yeah, get a nasty get car if you like taxi. Yeah. Take that to the <laughs> field and drive up and down. Right. Yeah, I got into uh, boats for a little while. Oh, did but, you? Uh, yeah, just for it didn't, it didn't sort of take. I've got a sailing. Like, I've got a sailing boat. The yacht, they're great. I oh, radio, out. yeah. I go out with. Well, the, the good thing about the yacht is, I used to sail when I was younger, and um, I got this boat given to me basically for free. And I, uh, I get there's a, there's a club, and actually there's a guy that used to fly planes. He invited me out there, and I took the the, the boat out there. And it's just so such a social thing. They they have a race. You know, they put boys down yeah. and, and then they say, oh, come on, guys, let's have a race. And they've got like a, a speaker and it counts down, you know, five minutes or two minutes, yeah. minutes or whatever yeah. it was yeah. to the start. And I love the yeah. starts. And you just, and it's just, you sit, you're sitting on a dock, basically looking over a little lake and you've got your little sailing boat. And oh, it's, it's, it's actually no, really, I, really good fun. Yeah, I built uh, one with a, a, a V hull and a multi, uh, what do you call it, a service drive. And I took it down to Surrey Dive, you know, in Box Hill. Yep. There's a and it was during the week, and so that was all right. There was no one there, and I was screaming around with this thing. And then I went on the weekend, and I said to the guy, the guys there, because they all had those uh, like tug steam yeah, tugs yeah, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. So I put this thing in the water, and I said, "Do you mind if I have a, a go with this?" And they go, "No, no, no, it's fine." So I did one run across the thing, and all I heard was bloody hell. <laughs> and he and he goes, "There's there's a club more suitable for your type of boat down at Caribbean Gardens, buddy." Uh, yeah, that was the end of that. <laughs> Don't you love the welcoming member? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. What are you doing? <laughs> That's a problem. I've seen that at flying clubs. We don't like that. Ito Segev, when he turned up, he just won the European Extreme Flying Championships and he was told by uh, a gentleman who is still around that, uh, oh, look, um, we think you're flying out of control and we don't fly like that at this club, so um, could you please leave? I was like, okay, the best pilot in Australia, probably the best well, pilot you'll ever see, yeah. has now been marched out of the club because yeah. you thought he was out of control. Out of control. Yeah. yeah well, like, some. No, I can show them what out of control looks like if they really yeah, want. But... Some club, our club is, uh, i got to say, it's really not bad. Yeah, we've got pretty good clubs. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, well, it's definitely the best club in Victoria. It's looking at other clubs, I think it's right up there. Yeah, but, no, I uh, think it's, it's – look, our club has got 170 members. So yep. I always say there's going to be some cons of that. Like it's, of course. There's always people there. <laughs> it's never – if it's a nice day, if it's flyable, you're yep. not going to be by yourself. Yep. If you're looking for, you know, a quiet little fly by yourself, go to a Chuka, you know, <laughs> but don't come well, to don't come to, to Pakenham. But. Well, they got a nice setup at a Chuka, and I said to them, oh, how many members have you got? He goes, oh, 25. I'm like, oh, that would be awesome. But um, uh, that's another thing with the three metres. You can go on days that most people wouldn't probably fly because um, they don't mind a bit the more wind. wind. It doesn't bother them. That is true. That's so very can, true. Yeah. And um, <laughs> we got, we've got we got a bit of a bad habit of going on nice days. You've got to practice it on crap days. That's when you really that's true. learn. Well, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, three, or, three or so weeks back now, I made my jet. At the Wangaratta Jets event, and everyone's like, "Oh, big crosswind!" Everyone's like, "Oh, it's a big crosswind!" I'm like, and I went out, and of course, it was my first time flying a turbine maiden flight of the plane. So I go out and have a look at some of the pilots landing. I'm thinking, this runway is like 40 meters wide or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, as long as you're over the over the runway, even if the plane drifts a bit because of the wind, yep, you're yep. still on the asphalt, right? So you know, I'm saying to myself, just position it like, and you know what? It didn't look that bad. It didn't look 
any different. And the plane, you know, my plane weighs around 11 kilos. It's not a light thing. And anyway, yeah, it was, it was fine. I, I didn't notice what, the wind. What jet is it? It's a Skymaster Viper jet, two metre. Oh, Viper jet. But yeah, the yeah, second yeah. flight, the second landing, there was a bit more of a crosswind and it crabbed in. But I looked at it and I went, I'm over the black stuff. That's good. Just leave it. Don't touch anything. It's tracking straight. Uh, and just correct it, you know, on the flare and uh, yep. it's non-event. But um, I have do seen. Do you know if. Yeah, sorry. Do, do you know if that, because they were trying to get that sport sport jet aerobatics knowing here. Yeah, haven't heard. I don't happen? think they've got it up. No. But, uh, it, it, they no. do it in China. I know that, that overseas yeah. they're doing that that whole yeah. sport jet thing because I love, well, why do you reckon I bought a sport jet? Because it's aerobatic. You know, that yeah. I, I like I like aerobatic planes. Exactly. Yep. And people listening to this podcast know that, and I always say that, you know, yeah. I, I love scale plane. Like if I wanted to appreciate and look at a plane, give me a scale yeah. plane any day because I think yeah. aerobatic planes are great to fly, but they're not the most exciting planes to look at. And you go and see some of these, like there was somebody flying a DC-3 at the club the other day, and you look at that. Yes. And that is just yes, great. Yes, yes. And, uh, you, know, you know, I don't go up to an extreme flight laser nowadays and go, that is the best-looking plane. Like, Awesome plane to fly, absolutely unreal but plane. That's, but, but that's why I like uh, iMac also because they are, um, you know, scale models as well. So, true, you know, well, kind of scale. Yes, it's kind. Well, the krill. I'm not flogging krill, but the krill is in Europe. They have a F three M, and yet the model has to be within five percent, I think. And uh, the krill extra actually passes. In Europe, so because I think iMac is ten percent, and um, yeah, so they're reasonably scale. They're not too bad. Yeah, I find some of the uh, extreme flight planes are not totally scale, but th- there's a reason for that. They know what works. Well, so that's like the yeah, that's like the radio wave Giles mm. is that is just they. I reckon they've gone right. Which full size plane looks like a pattern plane? And the Giles was that was pretty close, so we'll make that into a giant pattern plane. We'll say it's an IMAC plane. I know someone's, that, someone's got one of those uh, a kit. A mate of mine was Chris Rutter. That said he was yeah, um, I think um, Aaron Aaron Garl Bones, had one. Bones yeah had one, had but... one. and I think um, Steve Griggs built just finished one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he has. Yeah, and uh, fantastic flying plane. But um, yeah. you've got to build it from a kit, though, don't you? Yeah, the, the 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 radio wave is a kit. Yeah, like the uh, cardens, um, things like that. You got to build them from scratch. Which so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't mind. I'm building a um, a stole type aircraft from scratch. My oh, yeah? own creation. Yeah, <laughs> I love stole planes. That's another thing I like. Well, I like stole planes because of that uh, challenge of stole. Uh, yeah, no, because I had a decathlon. But it was a bit small, so this one now is a three point one meter. But you still only use like a seventy unit, and um, the I sort of it's sort of Cessnary, and I got the uh, wing is part of a kit that Wolf RC do, and uh, so I just got the wing and uh, rather than cut out all the ribs and uh, yeah, on the side. Uh, do you like building? I love building. Yes, I don't mind building at all. I mean, these days you don't. It's sort of oh, I krill though. I got to say. It, they, it's barely an ARF. Um, there's a lot of work to do on them. Um, but, yeah, building – no, I, I do like building from scratch. I've built many models from scratch. And uh, even Dad and I um, even designed um, F3A models, and they were 
well, I think they were reasonably successful. They worked all right. Yeah. There used to be a lot of that happening. People designed their own F3A planes. Yep. Yeah. yep, 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 to get what they want. There was a guy, um, Bruce Grinton, have you ever heard of him? Long, long time ago. And he um, used to do that. They used to um, come up with their own planes, their own ideas. I remember he came to the field once with a plane he designed, flew it once and said, no, nah, that's crap, and uh, we never saw the plane again. No, really? <laughs> so, yeah, no, I know a lot of people, like Eddie Edwards, I think he designed a plane. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Javelin, yep, or like the javelin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my friend Rob had one of his jav- had one of Eddie's javelins, or has one of Eddie's javelins. They're nice plane. Yeah, Eddie's still got them. Well, uh, yeah. final question. Yes. Uh, the signature move, as I call it. Uh, you've been in the hobby for a long time, so this could be a hard question for you to answer. But what has been your favourite model? Um, my favourite model is the one I'm flying at the moment. That is the extra the krill extra it is just it's just so nice it flies very nice it looks good um it is got heaps of power so yes it's a not lacking sort of thing i think so is that that's the, probably, is that the like a 100 cc size the 2.6 or is that yeah 2.6 yes 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 that's why yeah. i bought the bigger version of that plane yeah. Because it flies for me, it flies so nice. I mean, a lot of some people reckon the composite is a bit heavy for iMac, but I mean, my level of flying, it's all right. And um, no, they fly very nice. And that size plane just flies nice. That's definitely, uh, yeah, definitely my favorite. I mean, I fly that uh, more than anything. Uh, I'm a big fan of the krills. I do like the krills, and I'm a big fan of extras. Actually, I, I'm, if if there was one model aerobatic plane that I, you know, if I had to choose, it would be an extra. And I've got well, I've got a few. Yeah, I like the I like the edge or the extra. They're yeah. my two favourites. Yeah, definitely. And they're they're full on aerobatic aircraft. They're awesome. I've never been a fan of like biplane. I've never been a fan of a biplane. I don't know why. And, uh, things like that. So the only thing I've got with biplanes has got. More wings to attach and stuff like that. And I can't be bothered. Yeah. But the um, but yeah, no, no, I'm probably monoplane guy. But you know, some of the new the the, the pilot RC pits does look nice. But uh, and apparently yeah. they fly okay. But yeah, I've I, I think the pits the pits looks great in the air when flying. But I've never heard anybody say that. Oh, my pits are so precise and it's just such a great aerobatic plane. I had a I many years ago had a pilot RC. I uh, know that were they called a, not pilot RC like now it was the old old pilot, pilot Japanese or something. Yeah. yeah, and that was a pit, and I that was a it was it looked great. It was a dog. It was just terrible. Mm. They were so you'd do a spin and it'd do an extra two by itself. Yep, just yep. to you know they have shocking. I've yeah. got a um, and, I've got a plane that apparently does that. I haven't been too scared to try a spin on it, but apparently yeah, you've got to reverse the controls. You know, with a lot of Aerobatic yeah, planes yeah, nowadays yeah, yeah. just let go yeah. of everything and yeah. it'll ride itself. Yeah. With this, you have to actually fly it out. Of the throw them the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a bit, bit worried about that, so I actually get yeah, clear yeah, of it. Yeah. No, uh, I, I – yeah, that's what this was like, yeah. But, but I mean, the part, the modern ones, you know, they make them um, – like all those planes, they sh- first thing they do is stretch the tail. Yes. It makes them fly a lot nicer. That's like um, uh, Krill doing Ultimate, but that now – that just looks like a big F. That looks like an F, a big F three A. Yes, plane. yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't look much like an old. It's not the same. No. Nah. Yeah. Well, Simon, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and getting to know a bit more about you. And and uh, hopefully you come. And, I, I, look, I fly on the weekends at the club because I've got to work during the week. But uh, I might see you around there. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One day well, it's even... been a pleasure. I've been because I hated chat, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, you're a bit like me then. <laughs> yeah, I've done what this is. This is episode number fifty-two. So I've cracked the fifty oh, wow. mark, and so that's fifty-two episodes of people hearing my voice. And I've never been a I've never been on a podcast before. This would be amazing. It's not that hard, is it? No, <laughs> no, yeah. not when you talk about something you love. So many people say to me, well, "Let's publicly shame him, Glenn Orchard." Yes. Oh, you don't want me? I've got nothing to say. I'm going, Glenn. Oh. <laughs> what do you mean you got nothing to say? Uh, you know, F3A champion, world champs, father at a hobby yeah. shop. I'm like, yeah. we'll be going for four hours. And they're like, oh, nah, yeah. I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, I, a- I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep on asking him. I'm going to give him heaps about it. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a nice guy. He's got plenty to say, yeah. I would think. And, uh, and if he just- doesn't, I'll get Stevie Melkman on. He'll cover everybody. Oh, st- <laughs> yeah, Steve. Look. Yeah, he's yes. coming. He's coming. Thanks, yeah. Simon. We'll see you at the field. All right. No worries, man. Thank you very much. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Time for me to go. Another good episode in the books. Big thank you to Simon Ventvogel for joining me. Uh, I always say this podcast is not only about having big name guests, it's also about just having just the average modeler that you know may not have won a world championships or something like that uh, because I find their story just as interesting as you know the person that's won a competition uh, so there will be more uh, coming and don't forget uh, if you like this podcast subscribe tell your friends as well uh, and don't forget flat out RC Facebook and Instagram page and the YouTube channel uh, another video just dropped in the last week a uh, video that I shot on a Seagull, Seagull Models L4 Grasshopper. It's basically the military version of the Cub. Uh, and I saw that at the field, had the camera with me and just shot something uh, sort of impromptu, but it's there for you to see now. So up on the Flat Out, flat out RC YouTube channel and also the um, the Wang Jets event video that I shot uh, doing quite well, over a thousand views so far, which is not bad for me. Uh, so get on and have a look at that as well and subscribe whilst you're at it. Uh, working towards oh, only a few weeks ago now to the Bairnsdale, uh, Bairnsdale event, um, which I'm hoping to get to as well, weather permitting. So a lot happening. Hoping to get out for a fly myself as well, maybe in the coming weekend. I've been scanning the weather and it says showers, so hopefully that changes towards the end of the week and can go for a fly. Anyway, hope you're getting out there. And if you are, putting a few flights for me. Anyway, talk to you soon. Back next week. Thanks.